I just learned like, if I can get through that, if I can make it through this, I can do anything. And that was really compelling for me. I was a coach and I was sitting here like having done everything wrong and failed in every single way. And it was embarrassing. You have to make sure that your goals and the things that you're doing are actually aligning with your why and aligning with the things that you want to do. Some of these portfolios that have women involved are, are showing like 20% plus higher returns. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, we are super pumped today to have Dr. Aaron Helley, who is a doctor of business administration with a focus in investor psychology. I couldn't be more pumped to bring her on today because she's going to talk to us about the correlation between confidence and results. But as always, you know we're going to start off with a crazy story. So Dr. Helley, will you take us into the craziest real estate transaction you have ever experienced? Yes, absolutely. I don't know if it's crazy, but um, my like most interesting and challenging experience was a flip that I did in Nashville. So I currently live outside of Nashville. My husband's active duty military. So we were living here and then we moved to California and he worked on his master's degree for 18 months. And then we moved back here again. And I decided to, you know, not lose momentum in my business in that time. And I kept flipping here while I was there in California. And I was doing this very expensive flip. It was a $700,000 home. And I finished up the renovation about a week before COVID hit. And obviously that kind of came out of nowhere and nobody set foot in my house for like 10 days when I first listed it on the market. Super stressful. The mortgage payment on that hard money loan was $4,800 a month. And I was just sort of already stretched very, very thin and super, super stressed. And flipping from across the country, my contractors made it kind of look like they did a pretty good job on the surface. And we had high-end cabinets and countertops and, um, you know, good finishes, but they didn't really finish anything. They, like, for example, when my, when it finally, I got the first buyer went in there and did an inspection. The inspector opened up the kitchen under the kitchen sink and all the plumbing was just sitting on the floor. Like none of it was actually connected. All the piping, everything was just sitting there. So, and then we found out that there was like no outlet for the fridge. None of the outlets were cut out of the cabinets and the cabinets were just like set on the floor against the wall. I had already paid the contractor and I had thought I was done with the renovation. I was nowhere near done. I got a full price offer on that contract. This was in February of the year that COVID hit. And then they ended up walking away after the inspection put another 20k into it and then relisted it and then COVID hit and it was so incredibly stressful I thought for sure that I was gonna have to give up my entire portfolio I thought everything that I had done to that point was like I was like two years in at that point and I and I was all in every single thing I had and I thought I was gonna lose it all and it was very stressful I had a lot of very 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 stressful moments and finally sold that property for a big loss but I learned that if I could get through that and I somehow like kept making those monthly payments when I had almost zero income at the time because I was so focused on this one thing, 
that I just, I just learned like, if I can get through that, if I can make it through this, I can do anything. And that was really compelling for me. And now anytime that things go bad, I'm like, well, at least I'm not stuck under a $700,000 flip that has gone so wrong. <laughs> this is so awesome. I, you know, this is like everybody's main objection when they talk about investing out of state. How do I know the contractors are going to do a good job? And, and this went wrong for you in every possible way, it sounds like. Market shift, the contractors, et cetera. So I, first of all, thank you for having this outlook. Can you walk us through, like, was it just an immediate thing that happened where like bad thing happened, you, you take the good in it? Or was there like a period of depression? How did you work through that initial negative, you know, response and then, and then get through to, to where you have such positivity? Yeah. I mean, it's easy now, like two years later to be positive about it and know that I was able to really bounce back. Um, but I absolutely had moments, my moments of doubt during that time were debilitating. Like I, I wasn't, I was a coach and I was sitting here like having done everything wrong and failed in every single way. And it was embarrassing. And, um, you know, everyone has these objections when you first get started. Like they, you hear about somebody's uncle who lost their shirt in real estate and everybody's a, a hater at first. And I was like, man, everybody was right. Everybody was right. I failed. I have no business doing this. And I, I went through that for a long time. And, but now what I've learned and you, and you hear this from a lot of like the big, the coaches and the podcasters are like, you want to find someone who's been through it and who's failed and who's struggled because I will make sure now that my clients do not make those same mistakes that I do. And I'll never make those same mistakes again. And most importantly, like that has defined me in such a way that like, like my, this is my logo behind me, my BC Global Investments logo. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you're just listening, you can't see it. But like there's so I have so much pride now in my company. And what can't that is because of the struggles that I've been able to overcome. And I could have folded my businesses. I could have declared bankruptcy. I could have walked away at that point, but I didn't. And I lived to fight another day and I'm so much smarter and so much more successful now because of it. Which is just so cool. I mean, you have went from that experience to having over 12 million in assets, 14,000 a month in cash flow, 263 students in your courses. Like, tell us about that moment and how you, again, obviously you've shared with us how you've come through it a little bit. But tell us how you go from there to this empire that you're that you've built. Yeah, so that actually, I think the most compelling thing about all that was that was pretty much my last like true flip. I had I flipped for like a year, and that was my last one. All the money I made in flipping, I lost on that deal, and um, I kind of realized like, wow, I've worked my butt off for twelve months. And I have nothing to show for it. I don't have a property. I don't have any income. I don't have, you know, a built up bank account. I had nothing. And so I really realized, and I think this is what makes me a great coach, is that you you have to make sure that your goals and the things that you're doing are actually aligning with your why and aligning with the things that you want to do. And I wanted passive income. I wanted financial freedom. I wanted to hang out with my kids. Flipping didn't provide for any of that. And certainly like the stress that that one project caused me, like wasn't accommodating any of those things. And so I think the thing I do most with my coaching clients is just make sure, making sure that they stay focused 
And whether they realize it or not, they do the same thing for me. Like as I push people to achieve their goals, I am reminded you have to look at your goals like every single day. Otherwise you're not, you just, it's so easy to get derailed and get distracted and go down rabbit holes and pursue things that don't align with them. 100%. I was listening into a Tom Bilyeu, Ed Milet episode, and they're talking about even going down to every three hours or every hour, they're reflecting on their identity, who they are, where they're at. Yeah, love this. And so essentially this group that you're creating, not only are you helping a lot of people, but it's constantly a reminder to you to be held accountable to become the person that, that you want to become. Absolutely. So I want to take us into the psychology aspect. So you had a dissertation in investor psychology, which like when I heard this, I was like, my, my ears perked up, my excitement level went through the roof. So take us into some of the things that you were able to learn as a part of deeply studying the psychology behind real estate investors or, or just investors yeah. in general, I'm assuming. Yeah. So my, when I started my dissertation, it was like a two and a half year process. It was, it was a, a very big deal, very big project. And it wasn't initially about, it wasn't about the psychology at all. It was really about what makes a successful investor. I was trying to find like the factors that contributed to being a successful investor. And as I looked at, you know, my literature review was like half of the paper. And that's just where you go and you see what's already been published on the topic. And there's just copious amounts of data that look at most of the time they look at like 30 years of investor portfolios and they report back on the results. And I was just amazed to see that women were such great investors. And I started to look at the fact that the whole industry is geared toward men, like not just real estate or not, not even really geared toward men, but I guess like, well, some are geared toward men, but also just dominated by men and this concept of like masculinity and like you just Google Wall Street and you see pictures of bulls and men in suits and it's just very ma masculine and domineering. And, um, and if I can, if I can stop you, cause I want to get really specific here. So when you say women are great investors, can you quantify that a little bit? Is it that they get better returns or? They're better in every single category. Oh, geez. Literally across the board. The only thing that they have um, like lower stats would be if you were comparing like their willingness to take risk. So most of these, like I said, look at like a 30 year return. And some of these women, when you look at the same amount of money invested initially, and then what comes out of that portfolio after 30 years, women can perform better by like a fraction of a point. Like some of them say like 0.4%. Some of them are as much as 6% which is huge over a 30 year period. And then the other thing that I looked at, which there's not 30 years of data to support this yet, but as in the industry is realizing this, they're bringing women into um, firms and projects. And some of these portfolios that have women involved are, are showing like 20% plus higher return. Wow. And what I made of that, essentially this whole thing became a pilot study. Like I'll never, I'll never forget when I was actually pitching or arguing my dissertation at the very end of it, these doctors who were sitting on my panel were like, oh, okay. So basically what you did was create a pilot study. I'm like, wow, I just spent two and a half years and all I did was pilot study. But, um, cause there's just so much more to learn so much more to digest and look at. 
but um basically just knowing that there is this sort of discrepancy and I like I call it the dichotomy between um reported reported confidence because women report way less confidence but have higher returns and so just trying to sort of digest that and dissect it and then at the end of the day really what I what I learned and what helps me coach particularly women but men as well is just expressing to them like even though you're less confident if you are able to make sure that your portfolio well to kind of backtrack a little bit I think the reason this is completely my hypothesis, Aaron Helley, no one else, there's not like a ton of data behind this. But I think the reason that women do better is because they have so much more behind their why in a lot of cases, like they're, they're willing to hold on through the market cycles. We know all markets, the market cycles, that's normal. More women became millionaires after the 2008 housing crisis than men. Women just held on, made, made it through that. And a lot of them came out of their in a way better position than they went into it. And they were able to hold on because they had this plan and this why, whether they realized it was that or not, but they just stuck to it. And then women don't particularly go after the really high risk investments. They go toward the safer ones that are better in the long term. Whereas a lot of times men will say, oh, that one looks appealing. And they kind of jump around a lot. They, there's way more turnover in men's portfolios when compared to women. Interesting. Yeah. Like I have a million questions and I'm really excited to go into this and I want to get super specific because I want any, especially females listening to be able to grasp the value of what you're saying and understand like what in particular will help them go to their next level of success. Like I'm thinking of my, my 13 year old daughter who I've been trying to educate as much as possible. So she'll be ready um, when she wants to be. So if we can backtrack a little bit. So when you talk about uh, women being so successful, like, is that in net worth growth, like growing the capital stack that they have? Is that in, you know, cash flow? Can you kind of describe maybe the parameters of this pilot study? So the studies that I looked at had to do with portfolio growth. I'm not sure about like cash flow or dividends distributions. It didn't break it down like that as I think it was just trying to look at portfolios as a whole. So when you look at, you know, this much invested at, at year zero versus what it turned into at year 30, and then they just basically turn those into percentages. Cause obviously you can't say exactly investing yeah. this exact same amount over this period. So, um, it's a little bit more generic, which is like I said, why it ended up being a pilot study and probably led to more questions than answers. Um, as most of those but, things do. Yeah. So, so yeah, so let's dive in a little bit further. So, so when it's analyzing, is it analyzing like the, the total size of the portfolio or is it analyzing the, the net, uh, equity, like the portfolio minus the, the liabilities? Yeah, I think the equity is mostly what it, what it will report. There are a couple like offshoots of different data that you can get from it. Um, and of course they look at like how often things are traded and stuff like that. But most of them are looked, they're looked at in a very generic way. Cause some are like mutual funds, some are day traders, some are investing in other things. Um, so they, it's, it's pretty like generically reported so that you can compare across a variety of portfolios. Totally. And I'm just trying to think here, like what are the insights that we can give to, to women listening and what are the insights we can give to men, right? If women are doing it better in certain respects or in sounds like almost all respects, then what insights can men get from this? And so one of the things I'm hearing you mentioning is that 
one of the things that women do better in most cases is that they stay more consistent with a single, say like asset class, which allows them to outperform over a period of 30 years. Yep. Is that fair to say? And then women could benefit primarily by just increasing their confidence because they should have more confidence than they do. Absolutely. And I think that's the lesson for them to learn is that even like to trust themselves, trust your gut, trust the work that you've put into it and, and stick to your plan because that is really the discriminating factor is that women put a plan in place or, you know, successful investors in general put a plan in place and they stick to that plan regardless of the market cycle, regardless of these changes that inevitably occur over a 30 year period. And that I think is the biggest discriminating factor. And so when you're talking about women, like realizing that you have all the tools and you have the ability to generate great returns and you don't need anyone's permission or support to do that. Like I hear, this is part of why I I really explored this because I talk to people, not just my clients, but people who are interested in becoming investors. Almost 100% of the time when I talk to women, they will say, you know, I, I just don't know how to get my husband on board. My husband isn't supportive. And I have never had a man, a man say that. Never once. I've never had a man say, I don't know if I should do it because my wife isn't on board. My wife isn't supportive. Like they'll, they might say, you know, my wife doesn't quite get it, but it doesn't hold them back like it does that does with men. And I could relate to that so profoundly because I had the same experience when I first got started. My husband had a great W-2 job. He's in the army, was in the army, had this stable income. But I was like, I want to, I want to make this, build this huge empire. I want to make some really real returns. And he was super supportive in the sense of like, he's like, I trust you. You've done the homework. You've done the research. But he wasn't even capable of like, being able to really back me up, if that makes sense. Like he was like, do your thing. Here's the money we have to invest. I trust you. But he wasn't able to like, be like, yeah, you're making the right decision. I think you should invest in this, or I think you should look at it this way. And that was hard for me as a woman to dive in. Whereas men wouldn't have that same concern or wouldn't feel like they need to have that backup or have that support. And so that's something I try to drive home all the time personally and with all of the women that I work with and even more so with a lot of times couples will come to me and the wife will feel really compelled about something and sometimes the man like maybe doesn't know how to support them in that sense and that's just kind of what I try to help them see that's so fascinating so essentially the woman is still obviously longing for the man's like in, in your, in your scenario, you're saying, Hey, like I've got this and yet, but I, I want you to be a part of the process. Like, and I can relate to this on some level because I'm actively investing and my wife, like just loves everything like cooking and like kids and all that stuff. So she has zero desire. She's like, would rather watch paint dry than talk about investing. So like, it, it is interesting. Like I, there's that desire sometimes like, man, it'd be so cool to talk deeper about this. Like, is it more like that or I think one of the things I was hearing you saying is like, you want him to actually help make the decisions. Like, is that to like help boost confidence in you or? Yeah. Well, I don't even know if it's like, I need him to help make the decision. I think it's like, we need them to say, yeah, that's the right decision. We need yeah. that support and that like um, reinforcement that I think, and it's not just, it's not just always in a marriage. It's just what I've t- learned about women in general, women. And, it, and we see this in everything. Like we, 
I'm going to a wedding in two weeks and we have this whole text thread about what everyone is wearing. And men don't do that. Men don't right. need to make sure they're wearing the same things and that they're like to the dress code. And that's just a part of our personality. And we're told, not just in the investing scenario, but like society as a whole, we're told like, oh, women are indecisive and women need each other to go to the bathroom and stuff like that. And it's like, you know what? We can flip that coin and we can say, because of those things, we are really good at this. Well, it's, it's a really fascinating point because I, I do believe that women generally long more for relationships than, than men do in that sense, more of that community. Community is strength if used properly, I think was is to your point. And yet at the same point, maybe that's why men at the beginning can jump out the gate faster is they're not maybe as worried about what other people will think, although men do care about what people think. Um, that is really fascinating. So I would like to dive in and get more into the insights because it's just so yeah. cool that you've taken the time to study this. So what would you say are the top one to three mistakes that men are making in investing? And what are the top one to three mistakes that women are making in investing? Yeah. Okay. So for, for men, I think a lot of times I see those that do take action because honestly, like most of the people that even that invest in my course, never do anything. Unfortunately, I would say 85% of them who've even taken the step to invest and have purchased the course, don't ever even log into the course. And that's kind of human nature. So, but of those that do and commit and take action and get out there, I would say a lot of times men put themselves in a situation where they are overwhelmed and not that they can't handle it, but it's just like, it's hard for you to scale when you are at a point of like stress. And like when I was talking about that flip before, I couldn't do anything but be stuck in that flip. It took up all my brain capacity, all my emotion, everything. So I see that happen with men where they just go like all in 100% and then they're, they end up getting overwhelmed and they just can't really continue to scale or they quit because they just don't like that feeling. Um, women, on the other hand, tend to analyze and overanalyze and overanalyze and take a lot longer to take that first step. But typically when they do, because they're a little bit more cautious, I see them scaling quicker. Most of my client, most of my women clients scale more quickly and scale from a more comfortable place than men, than a lot of the men do. That's so interesting. So it's almost like a case of the tortoise and the hare. Would you say yeah. that'd be a fair, fair? So like, all right. So if we look at like the male archetype and the female archetype, and we, and we look at like the, the, would there be a perfect marriage between the two? Not that necessarily a husband and wife both have to be investors, but let's say you took a, a very successful male investor type and paired them with a very successful female, like what would be the perfect blend of those, of those two archetypes? Would it be like some level of force and confidence out the gate mixed with like, how would you put those together? You know, it's interesting. I've never thought about this, but I actually have clients that like meet, like, as you ask this question, I see their faces, they're Ryan and Angelica and they, um, they just have a really good 
they're very well matched, like very well paired. They have a great marriage and they work really well together. And I think it's because they where one of them is strong, the other one is weak and vice versa. And they're very supportive of each other. Like I'll have, it's funny, I'll have a conversation with both of them in the same day and it's, they have very different um, concerns, but they'll say, you know, Angelica feels good about that or Ryan's good about that and Ryan can handle that. Um, so I feel like they both have that balance. Like they're the biggest uh, thing working in their favor is that they're both committed to their goals. And their goals are the same. Their goals are aligned. Um, how they particularly see those goals being accomplished differs, but they're really supportive of each other and they trust each other. So, you know, it's not exactly answering your question, but, but I don't know that two, you know, no two investors are the same. Of all those people in my course, no one has the same goals. No one has the same strategy. No one has the same path or timeline. Um, but I think as long as you're willing to work as a team, which is what my husband and I too have learned to do is he's, we're so different. Um, but like, we know what the end game is. Like we have our eyes on the prize and it's so much easier to be disciplined and take like directed productive action to accommodate that. How cool. And so you guys are working together. So he works full time in the army. He's super busy. So I don't know that I would say we're really working together. Half the time he's like, what did I, what am I signing? I'm like, Hey, make sure right. you're home by six. We got a notary coming over and he has no idea. And the other day he actually, he was running this 50 mile race. He's one of those crazy people that does ultra marathons. Ultras. Yeah. And I, yeah. I met him at mile 39 and he had been running with this woman and she said, Oh my gosh, your husband told me all about your real estate pursuits. He said, you have like 45 doors. And I was like, uh, babe, we have 91 doors. Like, he <laughs> has no, no clue. Idea. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's like, like I joke, I'm like, you just keep making that consistent income that we can live off of. Like we literally live off of his income and everything in the business is what just keeps getting reinvested and what allows us to scale. So in that sense, we're working together. Um, yeah. but he's all in like completely supportive has never at this point has any objection to what we're doing, except for, I told you before we started recording, we've started to invest in some automated businesses. Those ones he's, you know, a little bit more involved in, but in terms of the real estate, he's like, do your thing, you know, let me know what you need. Yeah. This is so awesome. I have so many questions too. Like as you studied the investor psychology and, and the gender aspects to that, did you find that women typically invest in, in different types of real estate investments than men? For example, do you find, like, this is just a thought I would have off the cuff. It could be completely wrong. But would you see more women doing things like Airbnbs in that style and men doing more of maybe the less glamorous? Is that something that you noticed or is it is it not really broken out that way? I haven't seen that. I do see more more men being willing to flip and do renovations, but I think that's more a product of the fact that like most contractors are men and women just don't want to deal with. I feel like a lot of the women that are my age, like 35, that have kind of been around um, male-dominated industries, they're just like, I just don't want to deal with it. And so their strategy sort of avoids that. Um, I think men are more willing to confront issues with contractors get in the ring with those contractors yeah that's probably yeah. the only real pattern i've seen though because what i'm what i'm hoping to uncover with some of these questions is is obviously consistency you're mentioning is is the reason that they're getting the higher returns but i want to go deeper into 
there's got to be, I think, more to it than that, right? In the consistency, they found something. And so a lot of times what I see when we talk about value add or a way to make a lot of equity in a property, it's either by buying it for way below what it's worth. It's either that plus you you renovate the property or you reinvent the income of the property, which makes it more valuable. How are you seeing women grow that net worth so much? Or is it just by buying yeah. more than men buy? I think it comes down to two things. I think one of the big things is because of the lack of confidence, women are much more willing to take advice from other people, which which could be a bad thing. But in the sense of like being a real estate investor, you know, they hire an accountant, they hire someone to help them with their tax strategy, they hire property managers. <clears throat> and I think that that professional assistance helps a lot. Um, because obviously there's more than just buying you like you said you've got to buy right you've got tap the tax benefits are huge um and then i think the other big thing and this is alluded to a lot in the literature that i reviewed but the terminology has changed right like we have this everyone talks about your why now and everybody talks a lot about strategic plans which i didn't find those terms in the data in this in the um literature very often but the concept of it was there over and over again that women have like a deeper rooted reason for pursuing whatever it is that they were investing in so and that's what i call your why right so it a lot of times like it'll be <clears throat> it'll be family or um in my personal experience for some reason i get a lot of like young women. And then I got a lot of women in their late fifties, early sixties that just came out of a divorce. And they're like, I've given my entire adult life and I have nothing to show for it because I just got divorced. And that's when they're really compelled to grow their wealth. So I just think that they're, they take a lot more time to really think about their why and, and build, if you can build a plan around that, whether you're a man or a woman and you can stick to it and then just take advantage of the tax benefits and the appreciation that real estate naturally provides, that's where the, the wealth generation comes from. Yeah. Interesting. My mother-in-law likes to invest a lot in real estate and her why is really centered around providing housing for people that are not fortunate enough. And so that really drives her like to buy lots and lots of properties. All right, Erin, if you could tell us a little bit more about like the purpose and the why, do you think that the women's why is, is developed throughout their life and they have a bigger why and they just attach it to their investing or or do you think it's that once they realize they want to invest they're able to develop a deeper why yeah i i haven't <clears throat> i hadn't really thought too much about it until you asked this question but i i do think that it's more of the latter and i think that women have more of an opportunity to pursue the things that they're passionate about than men in a lot of cases especially you know sort of like this uh life kind of plays out the same way for most people you you become an adult you date you get married and you have kids and the way that men are taught to provide is much different than the you know the way that women are raised and i learned a lot of this in my dissertation as well and experienced this firsthand because when my husband and i were both active duty when we had our first kid <clears throat> And we both were set to deploy at the same time. Our daughter would have been six months old. I was going to Afghanistan. He was going to Iraq. And as soon as I found out, I, I literally resigned 
the next day. Like I had no obligation to the army. The army was downsizing. I was able to submit my resignation overnight and it was approved three days later. That thought never even entered my husband's mind. Like my husband, when we had kids, he was so driven to provide financially and take care of our family financially in a way that I clearly wasn't. I walked away from that income without a second thought, but I I was able to do that because of his income and because I knew that he would provide and take care of us. <clears throat> and so I, I chose to become a stay-at-home mom, which most men don't have the luxury of even considering. And then as a result of me having more time and me having a savings that I built up and then my husband's steady income that we could fall back on, I was able to build my own business and, and sort of risk this money that I had saved. Whereas most men, even, even if they have like an opportunity to do that, like wouldn't even consider doing that because they have responsibilities. So I think in that sense, and I'm, I'm like literally processing this as I'm talking. Um, yeah. We, and, and I know this, like I, I know how much of a, um, luxury it was to, even though being a stay-at-home mom is the hardest thing I've ever done, like it is such a privilege and not everyone gets to do that. Um, and not everyone gets to start their own business with a, a fallback plan of someone else's income. And so I think because of that, and I, and this is something I teach my clients all the time, like to really develop your why and really set your goals. Like you have to make capacity in your brain. You have to make the room for that and make the time for that. And that like what we were talking about before, like setting your goals and sticking to your goals might come down to like an hourly thing. Like you have to deliberately do that. So I definitely think you're onto something like when women decide to do this, the what they're having to sort of sacrifice like i have this conversation with myself almost every day like in order for me to continue to build my business that means that my family and my kids i have to sacrifice time with them and i have to sacrifice quality time with them so i have to make sure that that sacrifice is worth it um but i have the luxury of having that conversation in my own head and with my family and so not everyone can even go there, I guess. So I think that that's part of why, like, I think what you're alluding to is that's probably part of why women are able to be, to have this success is, is they have the luxury of that freedom, I guess. Yeah. And I just look at, you know, my wife and she it just seems so much more natural for her to, to see things from a purposeful perspective. I, I mean, I consider myself to be a pretty purposeful person. And, and yet there are just, I think there are shades to the way that she sees life that are maybe more colorful than the way that I, I see them. And so I imagine if, if investing interested her, she would come at it likely from like the perspective that you're saying, it would definitely be slower at the beginning. It would like a lot of the things you're saying, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I'm sure there's exceptions on both sides of the gender aisle, but at least from, from my perspective of her, it seems like that would be pretty consistent. What, what I'd love to do now is talk about your role as a coach. So I'm very passionate about this being a former teacher, helping real estate investors and agents, et cetera. Give us some insights into the breakthroughs you're able to help people get. Like what, give us some examples of the struggle. What sort of techniques, tactics are you using that are helping people overcome and do better in their, yeah. their investing? Yeah. So 
spoiler alert, being a coach is, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And I, I can say that from a couple of different perspectives. I coach investors. I coach realtors on my real estate team. And then I coach my kids, little league, softball, soccer, um, and they're four and six. So that's, it's a little interesting, but essentially the strategy is the same, right? You've got to figure out what the end state is. So in sports, it's, it's just like winning. It's like mastering the game, continuing to improve your skills and winning. It's no different in um, being a realtor or being a successful investor, but the, the discriminating factor is defining success. And this is something that I really push for for women particularly, and I come at this from a woman's perspective, who's been in a male-dominated industry for my entire adult life, um, starting at West Point, serving in the Army, and now being in real estate. The definition of success is very broad, right? And I feel like so in so many ways, I've been told what successful looks like. And until I decided success for myself and built my own businesses, I've never been fulfilled. I was never fulfilled in the army or leading up to that until I was able to really harness this idea of defining success for myself. And now I'm fulfilled. I sleep well. I'm just happy with where I'm at. And I've been able to scale in a way that, you know, I think you can only when you are on the right path for you. So that's what I think it starts with is, is defining that success and that's building your why. Like, what does life look like for you when you don't have to worry about time constraints, money constraints. Like, what do you want your life to be like? And when do you want your life to be like that? And then you just backwards plan and put a strategic plan together. And so. And I want to dive into this a little bit. So you have stated you have a different why than most men do in these men dominated industries. Can you describe what you would say is the stereotypical male why? And how yours would differ from yeah. that. Yeah. And I don't know if this is general gender neutral, but I feel like sort of like the American dream is to make money and, and buy nice things, like buy a great car and buy a boat and have a cool piece of property. But the people that are actually living that out are like up to their ears in debt and they're two months away from bankruptcy. And mine is the complete opposite. Like I want to make a ton of money, but mo more importantly, I just want to, I don't want to work. I want to hang out with my kids and I want to do things that are fun. And, um, you know, anything that I do in my business has to be fulfilling to me. And if it's not, I hire it out. So it's, it takes a long time to get to that point. It's, I, I'm always like, when I talk about stuff like this, it seems so easy. It's not easy. It took, I worked for two and a half years. I didn't take a day off. It wasn't until year three that I, was able to like reap the benefits of my businesses. Um, but I, over and over again, almost daily have to choose, I choose not to pursue this or not to work with this client so that my business is truly a lifestyle business. And so that comes with sacrifice, right? Like my social media person is like, you need to like do these videos where it's showing the luxury of your life. And I'm like, my life is not luxurious. Like I buy my clothes at Walmart and you know, I, I shop at Walmart. Like I, I'm able to have the success I have because I'm disciplined and because I know what matters and what's important. Um, granted. This is so yeah. true. Yeah. yeah granted, continue. We, we just bought a Tesla cash and um, a model Y and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, what a flex. And I'm like, 
people first can't wrap their head around, like everyone has asked us what our interest rate is. And we're like, we just paid for it. And people can't wrap their head around that. And and everyone's like, oh my gosh, what in a, you know, so expensive, such a luxury, luxury car. But when you really look at the, first of all, the amount of money, my husband was paying almost $800 on gas per month, driving his F-150 to and from work. Now we spend about $30 a month in electricity. There's no maintenance. Yeah, there's no maintenance. It's, if you look at it over like the life of the investment, it true, it's more of an investment than any gas car you could buy. But so you just sort of, I've just realized like how different are, we can hardly even have a conversation with people who aren't on the same wavelength as us because we can't understand each other. Like people are like, you bought an electric car. And then we're like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you buy an electric car? And then they're like, what's your interest rate? And we're like, why would we take out a car loan? Like once you get to the point of, um, being able to make these decisions that align with your why, which can be really different than everyone else's people that never even take the time to do their why you just realize how different you are. And that's the conversation I have with most clients is like, my mom says I shouldn't invest in real estate. I'm like, really? What's your mom's net worth? And they're like, I don't know, probably nothing. I'm like, so stop listening to your mom. Like, I don't want to be disrespectful, but that's right. don't do it like her. Cause she's not doing it the way you want to do it. A hundred percent. Vetting criteria is so important. This is actually something I learned from my brother. Um, he, he, he has a very strong vetting criteria. We are still just as different as the type of people you described. And yet I learned from him that vetting criteria is really good. And one of those things is that you only take advice from people that you'd switch places with on that particular topic. Yeah. I actually saw a Dave Ramsey short this morning where he was saying 79% of millionaires uh, had no inheritance. They made it completely from scratch. And then another 10% either had an inheritance so small it didn't matter or inherited money after they were already a millionaire. So it's like 89% of all millionaires right now are self-made. And and yet the the general consensus is that it would probably be the opposite. And that it's you you in the process of becoming a millionaire, it's glamorous, but whereas for most people it's the complete opposite. Like you said, it's the Walmart, it's the spending less, it's the all those types of things. Do you find like I take a lot of joy in being frugal in certain ways. Like, you know, like our, our entertainment last night was watching my three-year-old son ask me to cut chicken into little big pieces. You know, that was plenty satisfaction for me. So tell me about that. Like a lot of people do take their satisfaction out of, you know, boating and all these expensive hobbies. How do you find your satisfaction if you're, if you're not spending a lot of money? Yeah. Well, I would say I, I like to spend money on travel. And when we travel, like we're Disney people, which obviously Disney is not cheap. Um, and we like to travel any opportunity that we get. So when it comes to travel, I do spend money and I would honestly be okay with like leaving this earth, having seen the whole earth and having nothing to show for it besides my memories. But so that is super compelling because while I would, I would not go to a local bar and and spend $6 on a margarita, but I will go on a Disney cruise and I'll spend $18 on a margarita and I will enjoy it. So I think it just comes down to like knowing what it's all for. Like when I, when we travel, I like to prepay for everything. And then I want to just truly enjoy it. I don't want to split my credit card 10 times a day. So it's that much easier to be disciplined though, when you have that big goal. Like, I'm like, I will sacrifice. I will not eat out. I will, um, you know, not spend money on alcohol, not spend money on whatever to spend money on this thing that really matters. So I think that's what, what it comes down to. Um, and what we appreciate more than 
stuff and things is experiences. And we actually just, my four-year-old, my kid just turned four, made a birthday party this past weekend. And we went to this like bouncy house place and I had a couple of her friends and I specifically asked all these parents, I was like, please do not bring a gift because this party is so extra that I want her to know that the party is her gift and her friends being there is her gift. These parents, I swear you would have thought that I was like making them do something that they were going to go to prison for. Like they were like losing their minds about the fact that they weren't going to bring a gift to the party. And one of them brought a gift anyway, even though I had these conversations with them. And I was kind of annoyed about it because I was like, now my kid, like there was this whole part of the party where she wanted to open a present and the other kids were like, I didn't bring a present and it got weird. And I, um, I, you know, I didn't say anything to them about it, but I'm just like, I just hate that we are such a thing society. And I hate that. Like, like when someone, for those of you listening, when someone tells you don't bring a gift to a party, don't bring a gift. They say that for a reason. Right. Yeah. They actually mean it. I don't want my kid to have a bunch of this plastic junk that I'm going to turn them to throw in the garbage every year and a half or two years that we move. And our, our lives are different than most people's, but, um, it's just what matters to us. And like for Christmas, my kids don't get Jack. Like they get, they get like a pair of pajamas and like maybe something that they need because we like, we're going to Turks and Caicos in January and next, next June, we're going on a Disney cruise to Alaska. Like that's where our money goes. So, but our kids, our kids are just, you know, they're not the kids in the store that are like, I want this, I want that. Can I have a toy? Because like, there are almost no toys in our house. We don't have a playroom. Um, but you know, we go to the playground, we go out and we do stuff. And so kind of going off on a tangent and some people might be listening and being like, you're such a weird parent or such a weird mom, such a weird family, but like, that is what's important to us. And when you take the time to find out what matters to you and what's fulfilling your life is, you have such a better quality of life. And that's the same thing that you were saying. Like you find, you, you got great quality time. I'm sorry. Great quality time with your family last night. And you know what quality time looks like and feels like, and then you just pursue those things. So awesome. So oftentimes in the, towards the end of the interview, we asked the question about if you had a million dollars, a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, how would you structure your life? I feel like you've answered this question, right? You'd be with family, you'd be traveling, you'd be having a great time. So what I'd like to do is, is find out what do you, what's your vision for yourself, for your family, for your business in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. I mean, that is, it's such a loaded question because I feel like as a business owner, looking beyond like a month is a lot because things just change so drastically. And up until like January, February of this year, we were all in on real estate. And then we tried to do a 1031 exchange on a property that we sold that we didn't even put on the market. We were sort of like having these concerns about our HOA. It was a condo on an Airbnb we had in Dustin, near Dustin. And suddenly we got this off-market offer, which was 25K more than we even considered selling it for, and there were no realtor fees. So we sold it, and then we couldn't 1031 it because rates, two days before we closed, rates went through the roof. And we're pretty much limited to DSCR loans, private money loans, and nothing that we looked at could cash flow because the rates went up so quick. So we started looking into automated businesses, um, which actually have like catapulted our success 
more significantly. Even though we're not seeing the same appreciation we get from real estate, we are seeing like significant cash flow. But in more importantly, like they're all automated, so I don't have to do anything. So that's really compelling for me to just keep making money to keep buying businesses and keep buying cash flowing assets. Tangible, I like tangible assets um, that hold value and that appreciate in some way, but then pay you every month. So I think that's the goal is just to keep buying those assets and keep improving our lives. And we started a foundation, um, which we sort of did it for tax purposes because every year at Thanksgiving and Christmas, we try to really help people that need help locally with food or gifts. And we have never been able to take advantage of that, like from a tax benefit. So we created a foundation that will allow us to do that, but I think will allow us to do so much more good too. So I'm really excited to kind of put focus on that. And that's what's really fulfilling to me. And that's where my, like the pride that I get from that is amazing. Like to know that what we've been able to build has allowed us not only to change our lives, but hopefully change other people's lives too. Gosh, this is so fascinating. I wish we could sit here and talk for hours more. I'd love to do such a deep dive in the automated businesses and even in the purpose. Like it, you, I could tell that you're obviously very intentional in what you do and would love to spend a lot more time. But thank you so much for giving us the time and sharing about your life and your business. And for anybody listening, please take at least one thing and, and put it into action, whether it's be increasing your confidence or being a little bit more consistent or finding a better why. There's so many value points here that you can do. So pick one, tell somebody about it so they can hold you accountable and and then take action because freedom is only one action away. So one action away. So guys, please take this away. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.